millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. Peter Sutcliffe, better known as the Yorkshire Ripper. Many of us recognize this name, the serial killer who terrorised the north of England in the 1970s and early 1980s. He was all over the news as the public lived in fear, while the police tried to put an end to his horrific killing spree, which left over 20 people dead. But there was somebody else who was really mentioned in the British press, even though... They allegedly killed just as many, or even more, than the Yorkshire Ripper. Unlike his fellow peer in depravity, a man named Bruce George Peter Lee has always evaded widespread notoriety. Even though his actions put him on the list as one of the country's most prolific serial killers. You are listening to True Crime Britain. Join me, Rhiannon, each Wednesday as I tell the solved and unsolved stories of some of the most disturbing, mysterious and heartbreaking crimes committed throughout the United Kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode. It all started on the 4th of December, 1979. It had been a quiet night at Selby Street, 
in the small English port city of Hull. In house number 12, 34-year-old Edith Hastie slept peacefully with her four sons, Charlie, 15, Paul, 12, Thomas, 9, and 8-year-old Peter. Blissfully unaware of the chaos that would soon emerge. Only an hour or so had passed since Edith had kissed her son's goodnight when she suddenly woke up. Edith could not immediately say what had awoken her, but she knew something was terribly wrong. Perhaps it was the mother's sixth sense telling her to get up and go check on the children. It was then that Edith smelled smoke, and as she stepped outside onto the landing, she saw tall flames licking the wooden stairs. The whole downstairs was on fire. Edith then ran to wake her eldest, Charlie, who joined her in an effort to save Thomas, who had muscular dystrophy and would have had difficulty escaping by himself. Due to his condition, Thomas slept in the same bedroom as his mother. But when Edith and Charlie tried to get to him, the flames and smoke pushed them back. There was nothing they could do. The mother and son returned to the front bedroom, where Charlie helped Edith out of the window. There was a big drop, about 15 foot in fact, but some broken bones were a small price to pay for one's life. Edith was lucky and only injured her ankle as it hit the concrete path outside her home. She then turned back to the window and pleaded with Charlie to follow her. But the 15-year-old just couldn't leave his brothers behind. In absolute terror, Edith watched as Charlie ran back inside. Paul and Peter had slept in the same bedroom with Charlie, and while there may have been a possibility to escape before, that chance was now gone. The open window had caused a draft which fed the fire, and all three boys were soon trapped by the flames. By the time rescue workers arrived at the scene, Charlie, Paul and Peter had all suffered burns to over 70 to 85% of their bodies. The three brothers were taken to a specialist burns unit in Pinderfields Hospital in Wakefield, West Yorkshire, where Charlie succumbed to his injuries overnight. Peter fought for his life for the next two days, and Paul survived for a further 12 days. But in the end, all three boys passed away. Contrary to everyone's expectations, Thomas survived the inferno despite his difficulties by escaping through a window in the back bedroom. While the boy had lost his brothers, Thomas's three sisters 
had fortunately been staying with relatives on the night of the fire and were left unharmed. It did not take long for the firefighters to determine that the fire wasn't an accident. They had found matches on the porch and smelt the distinctive odour of paraffin in the house. As a result, a police investigation was initiated and Hull's Deputy Chief of the CID, Detective Superintendent Ronald Saga, arrived at the scene. He also noted the overwhelming smell of paraffin, which was rather strange, as usually such a smell would disappear with the fire. Saga also discovered a pool of the flammable liquid a few feet from the door, where someone had set down a can. It seemed like the perpetrator had poured paraffin through the letterbox onto the carpet and thrown a lit newspaper on top, setting the house on fire. But the question was, why? Had the arsonist targeted the Hasty family on purpose? Or had they actually meant to kill the family or just give them a scare? As the investigation continued, the police quickly learned that finding these answers was not going to be easy. The problem was, the Hasty family were not exactly well-liked in the neighbourhood. Edith's husband and the father of the children, Tommy, was a habitual petty criminal and was in the midst of serving his latest prison sentence for a burglary at the time of the incident. The couple's children had been following in their father's footsteps, taking part in Tommy's more severe offences and terrorising residents in their neighbourhood. The Hasties were known to rob local children out of their pocket money, stone the elderly and vandalise local shops and neighbouring houses. Needless to say, the family were very well known to the police. So well, in fact, that even though 20 families with the name Hasty lived in the city, many officers already knew where the fire was that night, just by hearing the words, The Hasty Family Home. So when Detective Saga began to question the neighbours, instead of getting any helpful information, he was bombarded by horrible comments about the family. It didn't appear to matter that the Hasties had just lost three young children. The locals just couldn't hold back their hatred. The press soon dubbed the area, quote, Street of Hate and Detective Saga commented on the situation by saying quote, Never before have I encountered such hatred and dislike for a family So the police didn't really have a lack of suspects but while many disliked the Hasties None of these people really seemed like a person who could have gone and set fire to a house 
where they knew children were sleeping at the time. Detective Sagar himself said that while the hasty children had been mischievous at times, they had still not done anything to deserve to die like this. But then, Edith recalled a threatening letter that had been put through their letterbox just months earlier. Miraculously, that anonymous note had survived the fire and was recovered from a part of the house untouched by the blaze. The letter, which had been written on a piece of cardboard from a packet of cornflakes breakfast cereal, read, quote, A family of fucking rubbish. We all hate you. You should all live on an island. Devil's Island. I'm not kidding, but I promised you a bomb, and by hell, I'm not kidding. Why don't you just flit while you've got the chance? If we can't get you out normally, then we'll bastard well bomb you out, and that's too good for you. The note was unsettling enough for Detective Saga and his colleagues to begin collecting handwriting samples from people living in the area. In the end, the authorities had taken samples from hundreds of people, and one of them matched the writing on the note. It was concluded that the author of the threatening letter was an elderly lady living nearby the hasty home. Charlie and his brothers had been relentlessly terrorising their neighbour until she felt something had to be done, so she wrote them a note. This frail old lady was a churchgoer and had written the letter filled with curse words as she said, quote, it would be the only type of language they would understand. Detective Saga quickly ruled her out as a potential suspect. On the 4th of January, 1980, the three hasty boys were laid to rest following a procession led down Selby Street. While there were many onlookers... Very few mourners participated in the funeral. As awful as it sounds, many people thought that the Hasties had only gotten what they deserved. Local TV cameras captured the moment a hysterical Edith screamed to the crowd, quote, It was one of you bastards. One of you in this street is the murderer. Edith's words were not far from the truth, but it would take many more months before the murderer would finally be captured, and that moment would just be the beginning of a much bigger and more terrifying story than anyone could have ever imagined. By now, Six months had passed without any significant progress in the case. Detective Saga and his colleagues had already ruled out Edith or one of her daughters as being behind the fire. They also investigated the possibility that the hasty home 
had actually been targeted by accident. The house next door was a known drug den and the police had received an anonymous call from a man saying that he had seen two men running away from the direction of number 12 Selby Street and entering a Rover 2000 car parked nearby. A successful drug dealer could have used that kind of vehicle at the time and the fact that the witness had seen two men at the scene including a getaway driver, suggested the fire may have resulted from an organised plot. However, despite all their efforts, the police found no evidence to support this theory. Eventually, Detective Sagar came to the conclusion that the witness who had claimed to see the men and the Rover 2000 was not credible at all. Nobody else had seen the vehicle, and somehow this person was able to recall even the tiniest details about the men's clothing, even though he had only seen them in the middle of the night. And on top of that, several things the witness said did not match the facts the police knew about the incident. Needless to say, Detective Saga and his colleagues were frustrated when the witness came back months later and claimed that he had made a mistake and that he had actually seen the rover and the men on a different night. Still, the police had uncovered an interesting development about a rover car owner they had on a surveillance list, and one of them was heavily involved in the local, quote, rent boy scene. The investigators were already aware of a rumour that Charlie Hastie had been offering sexual favours in exchange for money. Could it be that his home was burned to the ground because of an agreement gone wrong? By this time, both Tommy Hastie and the Central Police Station had received a similar phone call from an anonymous man. To the boy's father, the caller had cried and said, I'm sorry I killed your kids. To the authorities, this person admitted he was the one responsible for the fire, but he refused to reveal his name. Of course, The anonymous caller could have been a prankster, someone who got kicks from taunting the victim's relatives and the police. But what if the caller was the real deal? They had apologised to Tommy for killing his children. Could it be that it was never the arsonist's goal? But unfortunately, the calls could not be traced and the caller's identity remained a mystery. Meanwhile, Detective Saga followed the Rent Boy lead and interviewed local homosexuals. The police knew the Rover owner frequented certain public restrooms for these services, and detectives wanted to speak with everyone who'd done business in the area. 
One of these people that the police interviewed in June 1980 was a 19-year-old labourer called Bruce George Peter Lee. Bruce's real name was Peter Dinsdale, but since the summer of 1979, the teenager had used the name Bruce Lee in honour of his Kung Fu film star idol. To Detective Saga's surprise, Bruce did not only admit to knowing Charlie Hasty, but he also said that he had been involved in indecent sexual behaviour with the younger boy. The revelation did indeed connect Charlie to the rent boy scene, but the police still did not know for sure if someone from the scene was the killer. So Detective Saga decided to do something bold. They would bring several possible suspects in for questioning and accuse each in turn of burning down the hasty family home in the hopes that the real killer would soon break down and confess. This method was a rather desperate one but Detective Saga believed it was a necessary move to make at this point of the investigation. So when it was Bruce Lee's turn, Detective Saga sat in front of him, read him his rights, and said, quote, Bruce, I'll be quite blunt with you. I think that you started the fire at the Hasties family home and that your indecency with Charlie is probably the cause of it all somehow. However Detective Saga had thought Bruce would reply, he definitely did not expect to hear the words, quote, I didn't mean to kill them. Just like that, six months after the fire, the arsonist sat there at the police station, willing to explain his actions. According to Bruce, he had only wanted to teach Charlie a lesson. The 15-year-old had allegedly threatened Bruce and demanded more and more money from him after, quote, mucking about, wanking and stuff. Bruce continued by saying that Charlie had told him he would go to the police and tell them everything if he did not get what he wanted. After all, Charlie was still a minor, so him going to the police would have meant big trouble for Bruce. But there was another reason why Bruce held a grudge against the Hasty family. The 19-year-old had fallen in love and wanted Charlie's 16-year-old sister Angie as his girlfriend, but the teen had refused his offer time and time again. The issue was that Angie did not just politely decline Bruce's advances, but she, her brothers and other peers had bullied and ridiculed the older boy who was not exactly like everybody else, as Detective Sagar explained. Quote, 
He was not a normal young man. He was deformed. His right arm and right leg were deformed. He had a limp. He had a habit of holding his right arm across his chest. He was poorly dressed. He was clearly undernourished. And on first impressions, one had to feel sorry for him. On top of his appearance, Bruce Lee had a subnormal IQ of 68, which was considered the cut-off score for mental retardation. So when Bruce told Detective Saga that he only wanted to, quote, give Charlie a real frightener, he may have spoken the truth. However, there was much more that Bruce George Peter Lee had done that nobody yet knew about. Bruce explained that on the 4th of December 1979, he had gone to the hasty home after making sure everyone was sleeping. Bruce explained how he'd walked to the porch, poured paraffin through the letterbox, and failed twice to ignite it, before successfully using a piece of newspaper. Satisfied, Bruce then hid in the shadows, watching the flames engulf the house. The amount of details in Bruce's story that matched the findings at the crime scene convinced Detective Saga that the teenager was the Selby Street arsonist. But how had a harmless young man become a mass murderer? Born in Manchester on the 31st of July 1960, Peter George Dinsdale was not a product of a loving relationship, but an unwanted child of a prostitute named Doreen. Right from the start of his life, the little boy was ridiculed and despised because of congenital spastic hemiplegia in his right limbs, a deformed right arm, and the fact he suffered from epilepsy. As his mother wanted nothing to do with her son, Peter spent the first years of his life in the custody of his maternal grandmother. However, by the time Peter was three years old, he was sent to a children's home. Though, he did periodically live with his mother and her common-law husband. Due to his low IQ and severe learning difficulties, Peter left school at the age of 16 with no qualifications. He was subsequently employed as a labourer at a local pig farm and assisted at the local speedway track and at the gate for Hull Kingston Rovers on match days. Peter's co-workers would later describe the boy as quiet and unassuming, who would never say anything back to those who bullied him. Peter was a person with very few friends, 
and even fewer pennies in his pockets. That's why the teenager eventually got involved with the rent boy scene. By sleeping with men, Peter earned some much-needed money. But it was also the only way for him to have some human connection and affection. To everyone else, the teenager was known as, quote, Daft Peter, just an odd loner. Perhaps Peter tried to become somebody else. Somebody who would not just be ridiculed and bullied and left alone when he legally changed his name to Bruce George Peter Lee. After all, Bruce Lee was this tough guy, a kung fu fighter, everything Peter was not but wanted to be. However, Peter, or Bruce, went on to destroy the hasty home, and as it turned out, that was not his first time playing with fire. Six months before the tragedy at Selby Street, on the night of the 21st of June, 1979, a local mother named Ros Fenton was getting ready for bed when she noticed a figure standing by her front door through a window. Ros could even swear that she saw a hand poking through the mail slot. But... As soon as the person outside realised they were being watched, they left. Roz wasn't too alarmed, as she was quite sure that it was just Daft Peter, a harmless half-wit who lived nearby and often acted strangely around the neighbourhood. Just earlier that day, Roz had asked Peter to leave as the teenager had been loitering around on her porch. Used to Peter's odd behaviour, Roz went to bed, but she had only been sleeping for a moment when she was suddenly awoken by someone shouting, Fire! Roz rushed to her daughter, seven-year-old Samantha's bedroom, but as she was heavily pregnant at the time, she struggled to get out of the burning house fast enough. Eventually, the fierce fire forced Roz and Samantha to sit down in the corner of the living room as far from the flames as they could. Fortunately, the mother and daughter were rescued by firefighters, but they suffered severe burns and Roz sadly lost the baby she was carrying. She spent 11 months in hospital and underwent numerous surgeries. Despite the loss of her baby and other severe consequences of the fire, nobody had died in the eyes of the law, and therefore there was no inquest. At the time, it was believed that the fire was caused by a cigarette an earlier visitor at the home had dropped on their way out. 
Roz, however, was convinced this theory was wrong and that the fire had been deliberately set. But still, she was too poorly following the fire to give a statement to the police, and her sighting of Daft Peter was never reported. A year later, Roz heard the news about a young man named Bruce Lee who had been arrested for the Selby Street murders, but she didn't recognise the name. It was not until the press published a photo of this Bruce Lee a few days later that Roz soon realised that he and Daft Peter Dinsdale were actually the same person. Roz immediately contacted the police and voiced her suspicions about Bruce's involvement in other fires. Following this revelation, Detective Saga went to speak with Bruce, and just like that, the teenager confessed again, saying, quote, I just did it. Someone I knew didn't like her and, well... I just did it. Detective Saga was alarmed by this point, wondering how many other fires Bruce may have started and how many more potential victims there could be. So, he asked whether Bruce had caused injury or death by setting fires before. Detective Saga did not really expect to get a truthful answer, while part of him hoped that there was no more to know. But instead, after a long pause, Bruce looked at him and said, quote, Yes, you are right. I killed a little baby once. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It seemed like once Bruce Lee had started to talk, he could not stop. And as he kept going, Detective Saga became more and more shocked at what he was hearing. Bruce told Saga that a couple of years back, he had gone into a house in West Dock Avenue, Hull through an open window and sprinkled paraffin on some carpet and a couch and apparently a little girl had died 
As this claim was investigated, Detective Saga uncovered that Bruce was talking about a fire that had occurred on the 2nd of January 1977. That Sunday, Karen Fraser had been visited by her ex-husband, Pete Thacker, when the fire broke out. Their two eldest daughters had been rescued with the help of firemen. But despite their best efforts, six-month-old Katrina Thacker had perished. The subsequent inquest concluded that a spark from the open fire had started the blaze, even though the flames had spread far too quickly for it to have happened without an accelerant. Nevertheless, the incident was ruled as an accident and life moved on. It later emerged that the then 16-year-old Peter Dinsdale had been among the onlookers as the fire was being extinguished. He was also a frequent but unwanted visitor to Pete Thacker's pigeon loft. Peter had a habit of outstaying his welcome and walking into the Thacker home uninvited. Bruce continued his confession by saying, quote, Four killed, even more. The three hasties was my last one, but there's four other fires and one dead in each one. And then there was the blaze at an old people's home in 1977, which killed 11 elderly men. Bruce claimed he was responsible for that too. At this point, Detective Saga had a hard time believing what he was hearing. How could a teenager have committed such a crime? To test if Bruce was really telling the truth, Saga took him for a drive around the city of Hull and asked him to point out the locations of the fires. The first place Bruce asked Detective Saga to stop was Wensley Lodge Retirement Home, or what was left of it, as the building was partly demolished. Bruce explained that on the 5th of January 1977, just three days after the West Dock Avenue fire, he had cycled from his home to the retirement home with a can of paraffin on the handlebar of his bike. The teenager said he had selected the house as a target because it was nice and quiet. After breaking a window and pouring paraffin on the floor, Bruce set the home on fire and cycled away to watch the blaze from afar. The smoke was quickly noticed but the fire spread too fast. Bruce later read from the newspaper that he had killed 11 men, including Arthur Hardy, 65, Leonard Dennett, 73, William Beals, 73, John Ryby, 75, 
Percy Sanderson, 77. William Carter, 80. William Holt, 82. Arthur Elwood, 82. Benjamin Phillips, 83. Victor Consit, 83. And Harold Akester, 95. Once again, the fire was never investigated as arson. Instead, it was blamed on a blowtorch that a plumber had been using earlier that day in a bedroom directly underneath the room where the fire had later started. Somehow, it sounded logical that some material had been smouldering for seven hours before the home eventually went up in flames at around 9.30pm. Despite experts finding no faults with any of the equipment and the plumber himself saying for something like this to happen was in no way possible. Disturbingly, Bruce was describing the incident which was nothing less than one of Britain's worst mass murders, so extremely calmly, showing no regard for human life. The teenager said, quote, I could hear, like, old bloke shouting, don't ask me how I knowed they was old blokes, but they was not women and babies. I heard a man's voice shouting, God help me. It was bloody terrible. I knew that the fire was killing people. I knew as I walked along, blokes was dying in the fire. I'd killed people before in my fires, so I wasn't that bothered like. While Detective Saga was still trying to come to terms with the fact that he was speaking with a person who had allegedly killed 11 people at the age of 16 when Bruce pointed out yet another house. Apparently, this home on Askew Avenue was the place where Bruce had committed his first murder. On the evening of June the 23rd, 1973, a babysitter, Carol Dennett, had put the six Ellerington children and her own baby to bed. As the parents, Samuel Ellerington and his wife Catherine, returned home at about 2.30, all three adults retired to bed, and for a few hours... Everyone slept peacefully. Shortly after 7am, the Ellerintons woke up as smoke filled their home. Samuel and Catherine were able to get five of their children out of the burning house, but six-year-old Richard Ellerington was out of reach behind the flames, and he died of smoke inhalation. At the time, it was thought the fire was caused by a faulty gas meter. Little Richard had attended the same school for handicapped children as 12-year-old 
Peter Dinsdale, and the two had often travelled on the same school bus. Now, 19-year-old Bruce Lee told Detective Saga how he found out about Richard's fate. Quote, When we stepped in the bus the next morning, they said he's died in a fire during the night. I just sat on the bus, quiet, looking out of a window, and said, Note, I've kept it secret from everybody for years. Bruce continued, explaining that he did not really have any specific motive to target the home of the Ellerington family. But by then, he was already hooked on setting fires. Bruce's love for flames had begun years earlier, around the time when he was still Peter and about nine years old. Young Bruce loved bonfires and once started a fire in a shopping precinct which caused £17,000 worth of damage. Throughout his teenage years, Bruce started fires on a regular basis. Over 30 incidents are known, but there are likely many more which went unreported and Bruce himself may have forgotten about. While many people felt bad for daft Peter during the years, his unassuming behaviour had also helped him to fade into the background and go unnoticed. Bruce would even tell people he was nobody, but then add that nobody could ever guess what he'd been up to. Following the fire that claimed the life of Richard Ellerington, Bruce entered the home of 72-year-old Arthur Smythe through a broken window in the early hours of the 12th of October, 1973. After pouring paraffin all over the front room where the elderly man was sleeping and then setting it alight, Bruce just walked out the front door. Poor Arthur never stood a chance at attempting to survive the blaze. He suffered from gangrene in both his legs and died sitting in his armchair. A subsequent investigation concluded that Arthur had likely knocked over a paraffin heater in his sleep. Case closed. And yet, just a couple of weeks later, on the afternoon of the 27th of October 1973, yet another fire broke out in similar circumstances. That night, 34-year-old David Brewer's house on Madley Street burned down. David, whose clothes had caught fire, managed to run out into the street, but he succumbed to his injuries nine days later. Again, a paraffin heater was blamed for the incident and the death was not investigated any further. But years later, Bruce Lee 
confessed that he had rowed with David a few days earlier over some pigeons, which resulted in him breaking into the older man's home and setting it on fire. The pigeons in question were later found dead with their necks wrung. Years later, Bruce claimed to Detective Saga that David had clipped him across his ear, adding, quote, He shouldn't have done that. Following David's murder, there were no victims for over a year. But of course, Bruce could not stop. His next victim was 82-year-old Elizabeth Rokar, a widow who lived on Rosamond Street, who died from smoke inhalation after the head of her bed had caught fire. The inquest concluded that Elizabeth had likely been smoking in bed and fallen asleep, allowing the sheets to catch fire. Though, the old lady's family insisted that she never smoked in bed. In reality, Bruce had entered Elizabeth's house through the unlocked back door, which was left open so that her cat could come and go. This time, there was no apparent motive. Bruce had just simply wanted to burn something, and he did not care that there had been someone sleeping on the bed. As he later said, quote, I did see someone lying in a bed, but I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. I didn't wake him up to ask, did I? After the fire on Rosamond Street, Bruce once again took his time before the next fatal arson. On 3rd of June, 1976, a fire in a home on Orchard Park claimed the life of one-year-old Andrew Edwards. That evening, Andrew's great-grandmother, 77-year-old Dorothy Stevenson, had been looking after the little boy and his two siblings. Shortly after putting the children to bed, Dorothy noticed smoke coming from the cupboard underneath the stairs. Everyone else managed to get out of the house in time, but Andrew died from smoke inhalation before anyone could get to him. The boy's brother, five-year-old David, initially claimed that he was the one responsible for the fire breaking out saying that he had been playing with matches. However, Dorothy denied David's version of events could be true, as there were no matches in the house other than the ones in her pocket. Sometime later, David changed his story, and unburnt fuel in the open fireplace was believed to have caused the fire. Again, it had really been Bruce who had snuck into the house and poured paraffin underneath the stairs before igniting it. Andrew's death 
was followed by the fires on West Dock Avenue and Wensley Lodge Residential Home, the ones Bruce had told Detective Sagar about first. But unfortunately, there was still more to be revealed from the time before the hasty murders. On the 27th of April, 1977, Peter Jordan was woken up by a fire at around 3am. At the time, there were seven people in the house, including Peter's children and his friends, Albert and Gwendolyn Gold, and their children. The fire spread rapidly, and despite the efforts of the parents to rescue everyone, a 13-year-old disabled girl named Deborah Hooper and 7-year-old Mark Jordan were left trapped in the fire and died at the scene. The young boy had actually tried to save Deborah and was recommended for a bravery award for his actions. This time, it was believed that the fire had all started from a lit cigarette in an ashtray, causing Peter Jordan to feel an overwhelming guilt on top of the unimaginable agony over losing his son. For more than three years, Peter had to wonder if he was really responsible for the death of the two children, despite the lack of evidence supporting this theory. While nothing could bring Mark or Deborah back, Peter was finally freed of that guilt when Bruce Lee admitted that he had entered the house by breaking a window and setting it on fire after pouring petrol in the living room. The next tragedy struck at Reynoldson Street on the 6th of January, 1978, when a 24-year-old mother of four, Christine Dixon, returned home after visiting a neighbour to find her house on fire. Christine instinctively ran inside to attempt to save her family and managed to pull out her baby boy, Brian. But as she went back in for five-year-old Mark, four-year-old Stephen and 16-month-old Michael, Christine did not make it out again. The mother and her three sons died surrounded by the flames while only Christine's husband and their baby son survived. Brian went to live with his maternal grandmother, while everyone believed that the tragic fire had started from the elder boys playing with lighter fluid that was kept on a shelf in the front room. What had really happened, the reason why almost a whole family had perished, was far more disturbing. Bruce Lee explained that he had had tingling in his fingers and a fire in his head that day and simply chose the Dixon's house at random. Bruce said he squirted the paraffin through the letterbox 
and threw some lit paper onto it before running away. The teenager claimed he had to go to the Bible after killing Christine and her boys, and perhaps that was true, as it would be almost two years before Bruce struck again, this time targeting Charlie Hasty and his family. For years, Peter George Dinsdale, a.k.a. Bruce George Peter Lee's horrifying crimes had been blamed on someone else or said to be just tragic accidents. It was not before the tenth fatal fire and Bruce's confession that his reign of terror finally ended and was revealed in its entirety. Detective Sagar's test had proved Bruce was not pretending to be something he was not. As unbelievable as his story sounded, he was telling the truth. All of a sudden, 19-year-old Bruce Lee, a man who had been ridiculed and seen as a nobody all of his life, found himself on the list of Britain's most prolific serial killers. In the end, Bruce was charged with 26 counts of murder, various counts of arson, and two counts of grievous bodily harm in the case of the Fenton Fire in October 1980. Apparently, Bruce was satisfied with the charges, and, despite his lawyer's recommendation, he didn't want to recant his confessions. Following the charges, Bruce underwent psychiatric evaluation and was found fit to stand trial. It was concluded that the teenager was a pyromaniac, but this did not prevent him from understanding the consequences of his actions. In January 1981, Bruce Lee pled not guilty to 26 charges of murder, but pled guilty to 26 counts of manslaughter, and the other counts, including 11 arsons, on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The Crown accepted Bruce's pleas, and Mr Justice Tudor Evans ordered the teenager to be detained indefinitely under the Mental Health Act, saying he was, quote, a psychopath and an immediate danger to the public. Bruce was initially taken to Park Lane Special Hospital in Liverpool, but was later transferred to the Rampton Secure Hospital, where he remains to this day. Bruce's conviction was followed by suspicions about the veracity of his claims. The Sunday Times newspaper wrote about the possibility that the police had used Bruce's low intelligence against him 
and coerced him into confessing to crimes he had not committed, similar to what happened with another serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas. Detective Saga strongly denied the allegations and successfully sued the newspaper following the claims. This, however, did not change the fact that a public inquiry in 1983 concluded that the fire at the Wensley Lodge retirement home was accidental and 11 of Bruce's 26 manslaughter convictions were subsequently quashed. Making his decision, Lord Justice Ackner said he acknowledged lingering doubts as to the cause of that fire, but stressed that, quote, We are far from satisfied that Bruce Lee did not set Wensley Lodge on fire. Still, despite Lord Justice Ackner's words, the public inquiry was followed by numerous questions about Bruce's confessions. The truth is that there was very little physical evidence supporting the teenager's claims, so the convictions were highly based on his own statements as to what had happened. It also seemed a bit weird that so many of the fires that Bruce claimed to be responsible for were ruled as an accident by professional investigators. But still, fires like that were quite common back then in the area where Bruce lived, where open fires were mostly used to heat homes. It is possible that Bruce simply got lucky and nobody suspected arson. More than 40 years since the conviction of Bruce Lee, who is now known as Peter Dredette, there are still doubts about what he actually was responsible for doing and what he wasn't. In 2021, Peter's lawyers argued that due to his physical disabilities, he could not have committed the crimes and only confessed because of his mental disabilities. A year later, in 2022, the Court of Appeal ruled Peter indeed could not have been responsible for two of the fires, which meant he was acquitted of three more manslaughters while the remaining convictions were upheld. Today, the number of victims of Bruce Lee or Peter Trajet is officially believed to be 12. Despite the continuing debate, Bruce George Peter Lee still holds his place as one of Britain's most prolific serial killers that very few have ever heard about, at least for now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode 
and thank you for your kind messages of support, feedback, positive reviews, and of course, your patience. I really do appreciate it, and I love reading what you have to say. For transcripts, photos, credits, and resources relating to today's episode, please visit www.truecrimebritain.com. If you'd like to access things like ad-free, early release, and bonus episodes, I'd love you to consider supporting the show by joining me on Patreon, where you could get access to all that and even more rewards from just £1 a month. You can join now by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimebritain or see the episode description. Don't forget, you can also like, follow and or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. There are some big cases coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss out. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube for regular case updates. Just search for True Crime Britain. If you're already supporting me on Patreon, you can find next week's episode already there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and please stay safe. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.